political confusion. Music is a powerful means of expression in Jamaica. It's a bellwether for the social and political climate, often addressing major events, since local media and politicians don't always tell the whole story. In Jamaica, you've got to listen to the music. But the power and influence of Jamaican music has also been an attractive tool for the country's politicians, who have often tried to co-opt the music for their own purposes. Hello, Georges Collinet with you on another hip dip edition of Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. On today's show, State of Emergency, Reggae Reflections of Jamaica's Partisan Politics, we delve into this potent mix of music and politics on the turbulent island of Jamaica. Jamaica's dominant political parties are the People's National Party, or PNP, and the Jamaica Labour Party, also known as the JLP. Both were born from the bitter labour disputes of the 1930s. Here is Matthew J. Smith, professor in history at the University of West Indies in Kingston, Jamaica. In the history of Jamaica, the 1930s represent a watershed period. During the late 1930s, a series of labor rebellions which begin in the West trigger a large-scale movement for political change in the island. Out of this, the People's National Party was formed by barrister Norman Manley in 1938 and modeled on Fabian socialism, while the Jamaican Labor Party was formed by Manley's cousin, trade union leader Alexander Bustamante, in 1943 with a free market approach. The first elections that all adult Jamaicans were allowed to vote came in 1944. Partisan violence was already a problem. Bustamante won the election by a landslide, thanks to widespread support from working-class folk. In 1962, Jamaica becomes independent from Britain, with Bustamante and the JLP leading the country. But Jamaica, and in particular the capital, Kingston, are heavily divided along party lines. And it begins to spark violence. But as the violence in Jamaica evolves, particularly going into the immediate post-independence period, the politics is evolving parallel to it, and so the politics begins to draw on some of that. But it also develops into a history of, uh, of a sort of situation in which both parties are drawing heavily on these sectors to get that sort of party support. In 1963, a major event set the tone for the political landscape of inner-city Kingston for decades to come an area of slum housing in western Kingston known as Backo Wall, home to a growing Rastafarian community, is leveled in the name of progress. Here's Dr. Clinton Hutton, lecturer in political philosophy and culture at the University of West Indies in Kingston. Backo Wall. They, they destroyed Backo Wall in 1963. Independence was 62. And we have a national government, not a colonial government. A national government bulldozing, sending police, big tractors and shovels, 
and they destroy the place. Justifying it that it's a criminal entity, that these were the worst criminal in the country. And they are, and by the way, they are Rastas. Nobody has any sympathy for Rastafari. The Rastas are often marginalized, seen as a threat to political order and stability in the country and tended to generate a more panicked response than anything on the part of the state. So there's a lot of support for the idea of raising and demolishing Bakawar without much consideration to what that meant for the people there. Edward Siaga, a young JLP Minister for Development, replaced Bakawal with Tivoli Gardens, Jamaica's first large-scale public housing scheme. But in the process, many of the area's 5,000 residents were displaced. The new homes went mostly to JLP loyalists. The neighborhood has been faithful to the party ever since. But destroying Bakawal had dramatic consequences. Afterward, both political parties sought to strengthen support in flashpoint communities. They became known as garrison communities. Garrison representing, the term itself representing this idea of enclosed communities that were recipients of benefits from one political party in return for votes, in return for control of those areas as turfs that were really beholden to the parties. And each party had, had those. So Tivoli Gardens for the Jamaica Labour Party, but then you had places like Arnett Gardens uh, for the People's National Party, uh, and so on and so forth. And it is amongst these garrison communities that you begin to see party factions deepening along ideological lines, but really along party lines and the sense of violence in Jamaican life becomes a politicized issue. So here you have a situation in the 1960s that had become sort of a, a wider issue of violence, but it's somehow being absorbed in the parties and it's not uprooted, instead it's deepened by party politics. As gunshots rang out on inner city streets, politically aligned gangs ensured voter loyalty and dispensed their own systems of justice. And from this, the rude boy is born as a mythical figure. You say you're a rude boy. You also say you can't go to jail. But you live in a glass house, so don't throw stones. Rude, rude, rude. The Jamaican rude boy, a glamorized criminal, influenced by the gunslinging cowboys of spaghetti westerns and James Bond movies. The ultimate rude boy was well-dressed, lawless, and always on the run. He was idolized by young men living in Kingston, many who had migrated there from rural parts of Jamaica in search of work, only to find themselves living in crowded shanty towns and little opportunity. Since many singers and musicians came from these rough streets, Rude Boy songs became a new trend. Here's the Wailers featuring a young Bob Marley with their first single.
Simmer Down by The Wellers, one of the first songs to address the rise of the Rude Boy. Released in 1965, it was one of the last hits of the ska era. The new wave of Jamaican pop was the more spacious rocksteady style. Some rocksteady singers openly praised the Rudies, and others criticized them. Rudy come from Rudy come from jail, will he get bail and all them kind of rude boy songs there, you know? That, that was like a phenomenon coming in, you know what I mean? Top-ranking producer and sound system owner, King Jammy. That was a, a new thing, because there were, there were ska, mostly instrumental ska, and then you have the singing vocalists coming in, and you have the wheelers coming in with some rude boy thing, and some other people start copying that. We had a guy named Bosby at the time. The great record producer Bunny Striker Lee speaking on a song about an infamous rude boy called Busby by popular singer Derek Morgan. He asked Derek Morgan to write a tune about him. And Derek write a tune named Kula Frudy and he was very annoyed. Kula. Kula. If someone had a tough tune and that, so Derek went a tune him. Rudy's don't fear, tougher than tough, you know. With rude boy gangs at the center of a tense, politically charged atmosphere, Kingston streets become more violent. By October of 1966, violence reached unprecedented levels in the capital, resulting in a state of emergency. House to house searches led to over 400 arrests and 800 rounds of ammunition seized. Yet, just a week after the state of emergency ended, there was another shootout in downtown Kingston. Four short years after Jamaican independence, garrison communities were stockpiling weapons and preparing for a long fight. The guns, really, as a shift, really, really ontological shift, really came with the formation of garrison in 62, 63. But what really became a uh, an institution by 1966, when you had the state of emergency. Gun violence escalated even more in the run-up to the general election of February 1967. So the 1967 election is noted by many as really one of the first elections where you begin to see a new level of violence, and not just in terms of the action, violent acts being perpetrated, but in terms of the, the mechanisms of violence. You begin to see guns emerging a lot. Did you read the news? I'm a bit confused. The gun fever is bad. The gun fever. Guns get into Jamaica through, through smuggling, through importation, through, you know, sort of clandestine networks. Every time you read the cleaner star, this man shot dead all who cannot war. It's the fever. Oh, the gun fever. After 
after the JLP narrowly won the 1967 election, Donald Sangster took office, but died three months later. Hugh Scherer took over with a no-nonsense approach to Jamaica's growing crime problem. But his heavy hand didn't work. Meanwhile, labor unrest in the country added to his woes. The Ethiopians, with everything crash, sings of that time period. was rocked by rioting in October 1968. Poor living standards and rolling labor strikes continued to ripple across the island. Then, in 1969, PNP founder Norman Manley retired from politics. Taking over the leadership of the PNP was Norman Manley's son, the charismatic Michael Manley. It would mark a major turning point in Jamaican politics. In 1972, Jamaica held another election, which would bring a new era of politics in Jamaica. Knowing the power of music on the island, the PNP's Michael Manley employs the help of producer Clancy Eccles to dispatch pro-Manley musical bandwagons across the country in the run-up to the 1972 election. Here is Herbie Miller, director and curator of the Jamaican Music Museum at the Institute of Jamaica. We spoke to Miller on his porch one Balney Kingston evening. Michael Manley pulls together all the artists that would come with him and he did an around the island bandwagon. It included people like the Wheelers, Ken Booth, Toots, among many other top name artists. Of course, there I was, was there singing Better Must Come. Delroy Wilson with Better Must Come, a song used often in Manley's campaign, though Wilson did not write the song for that purpose. People could relate through the articulation of these performers who were putting back to the leadership what the problems were. So that's the crystallizing moment in terms of these songs. That's where it all comes together, where pop culture has been asked to play a vital role in the election of a party. And this is done when Michael Manley 
takes over the leadership of the People's National Party, the PNP. The use of Jamaican popular music in political campaign is fairly new and has never been taken to that level before. That's new. At the bandwagons, Manley appeared on stage with the Rod of Correction, a staff he claimed was a gift from Ethiopian Emperor Haile Selassie. The Rastafari figurehead who had visited Jamaica in 1966, the rod symbolized the change Manley promised, endearing him to many Rastafarians. Manley was soon nicknamed Joshua after the biblical figure who was fighting the evil pharaoh, also known as Hugh Sharer of the JLP. Let's be clear, the PNP used Rastafari symbolism to come to power and link in with young people because it represents what was progressive. Although some bandwagon artists did not publicly endorse Manley, others had no problem doing so. Hey, I'm Max Romeo. I'm the troublemaker in Jamaica. <laughs> yeah, I was on a mission to sing Hugh Shearer out of power, and I did. I was a Manleyite. We were on the battlefield together in 72. At the bandwagons, Romeo would proclaim a popular slogan in support of Manley and his party, assisted by a garrison enforcer nicknamed Burry Boy. If you want to be free, vote PNP. On the bandwagon, and on stage, that was one of the main things on stage. And then Burry Boy was my go-go dancer at the time. He would come on stage and flash him dread and weary and lay and motivate the crowd. Then Michael would come in his rod, and uh, you know it was it was fun more than anything else. You know it was really fun. Romeo would be helpful in building support for Manley, recording a number of reggae tunes to bolster his campaign. Others issued records supporting the JLP. Why labor getting stronger? Comrade face getting longer. Why labor getting stronger, election getting closer. Bamba, labor gonna beat them. Bamba. But releasing partisan songs could be perilous. Bunny Lee discovered this when he released Bill Gentile's Take the Rod from Our Back, which criticized Hugh Scherer and mocked Edward Siaga for appearing in public with a rod, just like Manley. Oh, take that rod from our back. Take that rod Bill Jenkins, he's dead now. Take that rod from off my back. Can't get no rice, no flour, and all them things. Right? So, when we put it out now, the followers don't like it because them say you dish them boss. You understand? So it was crossing a dangerous line. Bunny says the release of the song resulted in an attempt on his life. I was down Greenwich Farm one night and some guy come on in a car and just home fire and wanted to catch me in my hand. And me and Blackbeard run through a yard and a pig pen was in there and we did them flat amongst the pig and them. Assassin them come in, but them never find me because we lay down quiet, you know. 
you have to deal with everybody, you know. Can't, in my business, you can't be a one-sided man. In the end, music helped Manly achieve a sweeping victory, but expectations ran high. Manly's 1972 victory was resonated really among Jamaicans. And it wasn't just middle-class Jamaicans. Uh, a lot of uh, poor Jamaicans supported Michael Manly. When will better come? When will better come? When will better come? When will better come? All the promises that we get, we still not see no better yet. All the promises that we get, we still not see no better yet. Six a one, half a dozen of the other. If you jump from the frying pan, you end up in the fire. But change did not come quickly enough. So Junior Biles reversed the theme of better must come to ask, when will better come? On a popular single. While Max Romeo says the criticism he faced forced him to respond as well. I think the people who hold me accountable for putting that government in, and um, because I was very instrumental, so people started um, attacking me in the street. They were getting very physical about the situation, so I was to come up with a strategy, and that's when I decided to write that song. The song was No, Joshua, No. It warned of growing discontent from the perspective of a friend. Since you are my friend, Joshua, I think you should know, Joshua. Rasta is watching and blaming you. Manley heard the song and summoned Romeo. He called me to Jamaica House and said, um, the song motivating, playing night and day. And that's when all the social programs come in. Manley launched free healthcare, a minimum wage, free education, rural development projects, and a literacy program. It was all part of a new platform. In 1974, Michael Manley makes a turning point in Jamaican political life by declaring an idea of democratic socialism as a way forward for Jamaica. Its slogan, Socialism is Love, was the focus of another Max Romeo track. Socialism is love for your brothers. Socialism is Would you believe it? What happened in the, in the 1970s was a new lease of life in the, the masses of the Jamaican people. They were more involved in politics. They were more involved in monitoring the progress that it has been making or could make. More people were getting university education. More people were going to high schools. More people were being employed. So what has happened is that Jamaica as a sovereign state was taking on more flesh of sovereignty. The United States saw that as a threat. Not everyone was happy with democratic socialism. Edward Siaga, who became leader of the JLP in 1974, campaigned strongly against it. That sense of what socialism represents in 1974 is very different, particularly when 
Michael Manley is very clearly supportive of a pro-Cuba policy for Jamaican foreign relations, which flies in the face of what the United States wants in terms of containment of Castro's revolution in Cuba. There's a sense in which some people believe that democratic socialism will alienate Jamaica from the United States and parts of the world, and others believe it's a sort of progressive left-wing move uh, and most people translate it as actually communism, which really it isn't. You know, hear what the people them say. Then no one communist from them. That's Member of Parliament Pernell Charles, voicing the JLP line on a self-issued 45. But opposition to democratic socialism was not Manley's only problem. So he's dealing with that. He's dealing with a situation in which uh, violence and crime is increasing in the country. It can't really be contained only during moments of national elections, general elections, it's, it's going beyond that. And so he's unable to address that. One of the, the responses he tries to do to try and contain it is the creation of the gun court. Manley passed the Gun Court Act, imposing a sentence of indefinite detention for all firearm offenses. This gave the police new powers to disarm citizens. Of course, Jamaican singers had their say. Johnny Clark's Joshua's Word, a song referencing the gun court. But despite its harsh penalties, the gun court did little to sway gunmen. It's hard to properly police and to deal with that situation. Again, because so much of the party's support is going to rely heavily on these garrison constituencies, these communities that are funded, supported, and indeed armed by party representatives. And so the gun court emerges, but it does not deal with this issue of violence and gun crime. And so going into 1976, Jamaica once again is in a situation 10 years after the first state of emergency post-independence, another state of emergency is declared. In the run-up to the next election, violence flared, with over 100 people killed in the first five months of 1976. King Jemmy moved back to the West Kingston district of Waterhouse in 1976, after some years in Canada, and saw things had changed. I found that politics was divided in Jamaica, you know. You have two major parties were fighting for power. They brought it on the streets. You used to have invaders, too, you know. You used to have guys from the other side try to come in and invade and them fire shot and did side fire back shot and sometimes people get killed, sometimes people get shot and because I, I tell you something, you know, in those days, you know, most of the younger generation, they didn't have any work. So when a politician comes around and promises them things and 
give them a little thing, them resort to defending that person. Whether they know it's not a good thing or not, they just do it because of the influence of the politician. They think the politician can stop them from going to jail or from getting shot or getting hurt. So they just, they were influenced to do that. New songs naturally referenced this growing urban warfare. They were just sort of, you know, depicting what was really going on. You know, they used the live things to put to music, like the live sirens and the other sounds. Nineteen seventy-six, I had to run for it. Max Romeo on his long exile from Jamaica. I have the PNP closing in on me on the left, and the left misunderstanding now, Joshua, no? And the labor rights closing on me on the right. They wanted my head long ago for singing Share Out of Power. So the safest place was out of here. I was so bloody lucky to take my wife and my children, so I left here. I waited 13 years before I come back when all the guys who want my head was dead. In reaction to Manley's left-leaning policies and strong ties with Castro's Cuba, some believed the growing violence was sparked by covert CIA operations and that the U.S. was trying to destabilize the government. Political violence fill your city, yeah. Don't involve Rasta in your Opposition continued to play out in street violence. Manley declared a new state of emergency and a curfew in June 1976. Some leading JLP members were detained under the excuse that they were trying to overthrow the government. Be sure to visit Afropop.org for more on the history of music and politics in Jamaica. Major support for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Georges Collinet, and you're listening to Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. As the election drew near, music again played a vital role. This is a state of emergency in a jam drum. The soldiers are behind a heavy manner. The great Derek Morgan with his gun amnesty song, Under Heavy Manners, a common PNP slogan in 1976. But it would be Neville Martin's The Message that became the PNP main campaign song. The song celebrated a leader that was born in Jamaica, unlike Siaga, who was born in the US to Jamaican parents. In contrast, lyrics from Ernie Smith's 
Ja Kingdom Goes to Waste were used by Edward Siaga in a campaign speech. Unfortunately, Smith then received threats and went into exile. Music's role in 1976 went far beyond campaign songs. In 1976, at the same time, Bob Marley had become an international figure. He had just done a successful tour in, in the United Kingdom and the United States and was really kind of elevated as a hero. It's the first time you really see him transcending Jamaica as a, in terms of his hero status, the sort of a hero of the so-called third world. So in 1976, in the, at the end of the summer, he comes back from a massively successful summer tour and begins to make plans for a concert, a free show in Jamaica, a free concert, which would be named Smile Jamaica off of a single that he had released. But Manley's government had different plans. Going into the 1976 election, uh, Michael Manley and uh, his administration uh, were very keen to getting some support from Bob Marley. That show, though, of course, becomes absorbed by the state. Now, Bob Marley publicly never endorsed any party, either the PNP or the JLP, after, well, during this period in 1976. And so he tried really hard to navigate away from being in any position where he had to declare uh, his hand. Two weeks before the Smile Jamaica show, Manley called a snap election to be held, just 10 days after the concert. Political tension surged again, and two days before the concert, Bob Marley was shot at his home on Hope Road. So this is the assassination attempt on Bob Marley's life. Turning point for Jamaica, but also turning point for Bob Marley, because you know he goes and performs two days later after the concert at the Smile Jamaica uh, show, which takes place at Heroes Park, and, you know, becomes legendary uh, for that performance in the process. We don't need no trouble. After he performs, he goes into exile, but coming back to Jamaica, of course, elections are scheduled and they go through and unsurprisingly, Michael Manley wins. I don't think there have been any definitive uh, idea or answer to the question, who shot Bob Marley? Uh, the most recurring ones have been associated with the CIA. 
was was there CIA activity in Jamaica during the 70s? Of course, I think there's quite a lot of evidence that shows that. Did the CIA feel it necessary to support a move against Bob Marley is another issue altogether. There are many other reasons why somebody might want to take a, a shot at Bob Marley, especially when he was seen as, as endorsing, not by his design by any means, but he was seen as, as endorsing Michael Manley's candidacy in the 1976 election. It is plausible that there would have been forces from the other side that were disappointed in that move and sought to destabilize it by prevent the concert by happening by shooting after Bob Marley. On his second term, Manley faced major obstacles, including a huge deficit, negative economic growth, and... You have more violence. That violence is also beyond the, the scope, in some ways, of just simply political violence. Because the parties having armed various groups now to be the enforcers of party politics cannot control those groups in and out of elections. So you see a spreading violence across the country. You see increasing migration of particularly middle-class sectors leaving Jamaica during this period. Manley's leftist strategy also scared off foreign businesses and investors. With the economy on knife's edge, Manley made a surprise move. Michael Manley gives what is perhaps often regarded as his most famous and celebrated speech, the um, We Are Not For Sale speech, where he declares that Jamaica will not bow to any sort of capitalist uh, impulse and that Jamaica is quite willing to go its own way, even if it means a detachment from the United States trading and economy. It's a very brave, very powerful speech he makes. But less than a year later, he signs the IMF deal, which is seen as a complete betrayal of all of what he had supported. The IMF loan was not enough. 1978 saw food and oil shortages. Manley's social reforms grounded to a halt. Unrest grew across Jamaica and support for the Prime Minister plummeted. A popular slogan was graffitied across Kingston. IMF equals is Manley's fault. It, to me, signals an unraveling of the administration, particularly by the time you get to the, the late 70s, 78 to 80. That's when you begin to see it fraying more and more. Then, a tragic incident rocked the island in January 1978, underscoring the instability. But this time we won't forgive him for the green beer killing. This time we won't forgive him for the green beer killing. This time says murder. Ten young men from the JLP-connected area of Southside were taken to a shooting ranch at Green Bay, a few miles west of Kingston. The men were promised weapons and money to guard a worksite for a housing project. But they were lured by covert military officers with dubious intentions. 
Clinton Hutton again. The military intelligence unit in Jamaica, MIU, was involved, at least members of the MIU, were involved in working out a scheme in which young men from inner-city communities were promised work in this place and recruited to go. And when they were transported there, military opened up on them with machine gunfire. A number of the people survived. A number of them died. Just call the poor you them, tell them and promising and promising to give them work and, and then they knowing that you was a going to take them on the range and shoot them down. Tell me what I said I want you to know. Big youth with the song Green Bay Killing. The incident caused public outrage. To make matters worse, a PNP politician suggested that the actions were justified. The Minister of, of Defense at the time, in charge of the security forces, was Dudley Thompson. He, he said no angel died at Green Bay. The message was clear. In the eyes of politicians and the security forces, the leaders and foot soldiers of the garrison communities were expandable. As a result, a peace treaty was brokered by two prominent members of rival gangs. The goal? Well, no more killing of innocent youth in the name of politics. The gangs came together for peace. They have the peace treaty. Both sets of people, gangs from the two different parties, then look on at that and say, you know what? We better come together and have some peace because that's a threat not just to us, but to youths like us. The main architects were Bucky Marshall from PNP-affiliated Matthews Lane and Claudius Massop from the JLP stronghold of Tivoli Gardens. Here is Massop's widow, Sidonie, with more on Claudius and the peace treaty. Both parties and their leaders have created this tension between the vulnerable and the ignorant. And that's why I think he, he got the, the peace movement going. Because he was saying, these guys are sitting on their verandas every evening after work, drinking their scotch, right? And we're down here suffering, can't find two dollars to rub together to go to the market to buy some cabbage. There is a feeling, a feeling, a feeling of security Out in the streets and down Masop had been a childhood friend of Bob Marley, so after hatching the peace plan in late 1977, Masop, Marshall and other garrison leaders appealed to Marley to return to Jamaica from his self-imposed exile in England to help support the truce. He said, you know, listen, I'm, I'm going to call Bob. Bob needs to be back and be part of all of this. All of us, we need to really cut this crap and bring Bob home and try and live in peace with one another. 
In February 1978, Male returns. The, the welcome home was, you know, just fantastic. You know, some people would have said it was on par when Selassie came to, to Jamaica, you know, the way he was welcomed back to home. In April 1978, the One Love Peace Concert was held featuring 16 of Jamaica's top music acts. In the middle of his performance, Bob Marley invited Michael Manley and Edward Siaga to join him on stage, linking their hands together above his head in a gesture of solidarity. Could we have, could we have up here on stage here the presence of Mr. Michael Manley and Mr. Edward Siaga? We just want to shake hands and show the people that we're going to meet them right. We're going to unite. We're going to meet them right. We got to unite. But the peace treaty proved short-lived. In February 1979, Claudius Massop was killed by police. His body reportedly marked by 129 bullet entries. Others connected to the peace treaty also met violent deaths. Oh no, Mr. IMF, no. Your mountains we will not climb. Oh no, Mr. IMF, no. Everyone can see even the blind. The nation's woes were mounting. Unemployment leapt to new highs. Foreign exchange reserves vanished, causing major inflation. Manley withdrew from the IMF in early 1980, and a split within the PNB significantly worsened. Here is Smith again. That the left in Jamaica was actually very divided on the issue of whether or not they would support what Michael Manley was doing. There were people who felt that Michael Manley was not going far enough. So this, this notion that somehow there was a unified left-wing movement that was being uh, somehow hobbled by a violent right-wing counteraction with JLP and Siaga needs to be tempered with a, a greater sensitivity to the Jamaican political scene in the late 1970s. In February 1980, Manley called an election for the following October. It proved to be the bloodiest election cycle in the nation's history. 1980 election, it is often uh, claimed that 800 people were murdered in that election. But let's contextualize it. That the 1980 election was a very long election campaign. So it's a long period of violence. They really are unable to fully control the crime and the violence in the country during that period. Police stations were attacked, while members of both parties were shot at on the campaign trail, including former Prime Minister Hugh Scherer, along with Manley and Siaga. Dr. Hutton recalls the rising violence. There was an increased violence in the country. Uh, for the first time, I mean, in, in, in the election, uh, a thousand people were killed. Uh, we have never seen this in this country before. Uh, that was something new. From where I am looking across the skyline and just smoke up in the air because some quote-unquote shanties are being burnt and people are being forced to, to flee their houses because they belong to the wrong party. 
so what you have is a semblance of a civil war in the country. And then the ruling party certainly was not going to roll over and therefore it seek to get to respond. And so it's violence and violence. The election resulted in a landslide victory for Siaga and the JLP. It was one of the biggest losses ever experienced in Jamaican politics for Michael Manley. And it was read as a complete and final defeat of democratic socialism and of any left-wing chances in Jamaican politics. The left had been disappointed with him with the IMF deal and the middle class sector in Jamaica that had conventionally been supportive of the People's National Party, going back to uh, the days of Norman Manley, felt they had felt betrayed by Michael Manley and what he had been doing. In fact, there was a anecdote that was very uh, alive at the time, that if you put a dog to run against Michael Manley in 1980, the dog would win. With Siaga, a new era of Jamaican politics began. Hey, hey, special request to Ronald Reagan, right? Special request to Ronald Reagan. In terms of after 1980, Siaga comes to power in Jamaica the same year Ronald Reagan comes to power in the United States and it is often treated as a beginning of a right-wing shift in politics in the Americas generally. And so Siago is portrayed quite commonly as being very pro-US, pro-Reagan, uh, during the period of his prime ministership in the 1980s. Siaga got inflation under control, stimulated production, and strengthened ties with the US. In 1983, Siaga called the snap election. It was boycotted by Manley in protest at the GLP's refusal to update the electoral roll. The boycott cemented the GLP's hold on the country for the rest of the decade. But there was another major shift taking place in Jamaica that would have drastic consequences. Cocaine. You see an expansion in the cocaine trade in the 1980s, which is a pan-Caribbean problem then, it's a pan-Caribbean problem now. The drug trade becomes a fillip for a developing or a new development within the violence and the criminal industry in Jamaica which had in the decade before and violent crime had been so uh, polarized along ideological and party lines and also turf lines, now has this added element of the drug trade. Jamaica became a way station for the international cocaine trade and gang members from both sides of the political split were involved in it. And so the crime and violence in Jamaica in the 1980s rather than becoming this bright day that some people thought would happen with Siaga and the removal of Manly, actually becomes far more complicated, far more diffuse, and beyond the control of any political party or leader. As cocaine became more prevalent, Jamaican music also changed. New technology brought the digital dancehall era. And with the free market mentality taking hold, Many lyricists turned away from social issues, focusing instead on tales of sex, drugs, and guns. 
Don't put on it bad Don't put on it bad Send me love, put on it gimmick Because put on it to make you happy Put on it to make you sad Put on it But some songs still addressed social and political topics The success of Junior Reed's 1989 hit One Blood suggested that Jamaicans were rejecting the old tribalism. You could have come from Rima, I you come from Jungle. You could have come from Firehouse, I you come from Tower Hill. One blood, one blood, one blood. The 1989 election was relatively peaceful, a sign that the influence of politics was waning in the garrison communities. And when Michael Manley returns to office in 1989 once more, the rhetoric of democratic socialism is absent. He was a very different Michael Manley. And I think Manley too was very responsive to the wider global climate at the time where there was more of a movement towards the right. Political differences between parties were also less apparent. So you still have a sense of party division and a sense of allegiance to the parties for you know, different reasons, historical reasons, but not as strongly pronounced as before. Battling prostate cancer, Manley stood down in 1992 and his deputy, P.J. Patterson, took office. Manley succumbed to cancer in 1997 the end of the line for one of Jamaica's most iconic political figures. Here is Max Romeo again. When Manley dead, politics dead for me. The philosophy that he portrayed, these guys, is not with it. And I think it was good philosophies. You know, Jamaica is not for sale. Jamaica is for Jamaicans and try to do otherwise. As P.J. Patterson take over, I sell out half the bloody island and it's a trend selling it out because I think when Michael was talking, these guys was laughing. Yeah. Hey. From jungle to Rima From Tivoli to Matthews Through the 90s and into the 2000s, many garrison gangs turned into powerful drug cartels with an overseas reach. The Shower Posse of Tivoli Gardens, led by Christopher Goodes Coke, was one of the most notorious. Much like the earlier dons of Tivoli, Goodes was seen as a leader, providing Tivoli's residents with money, jobs, and more. He was a, what we call in Jamaica, a don of the area. That means he was a local person who had a strong degree of power within that region. And as a result of that, that power was used to create the infrastructure that it was often felt that the state couldn't provide. But that sort of power was a power that is extremely given to abuse. In August 2009, the US tried to extradite Coke. He was wanted in the United States for drug trafficking, which had become a serious issue from the 1980s on. And uh, there was a request for his extradition. When the request was made, the JLP was back in power, led by Prime Minister Bruce Golding. But due to the JLP's long-standing relationship with Tivoli Gardens, the request was denied. After facing months of pressure, Golding finally honored the request in May 2010. But capturing Coke was no easy task. Security forces and the Golding administration believed, or rather knew, that that power was so 
strong that it would take security forces to uproot it, that it had become a sort of network of control that spanned beyond Tivoli Gardens. The outcome was yet again another state of emergency in the country and the military forces were sent into Tivoli Gardens specifically to uh, take Christopher Koch. 76 died in the assault and hundreds were detained. There is a clash between the security forces and the people of Tivoli Gardens that spoke to a wider problem that followed us into independence that's still not been resolved between security forces and their violence towards people in inner city Jamaica. Golding's poor handling of the affair led to his resignation. Jamaican music continues to comment on political and social events, remaining a powerful alternative to major media and party rhetoric. But King Jamie may say it best. You know, music and politics doesn't really go together in Jamaica. Music is what really gets people together in Jamaica, you know what I mean? Music is what keeps us together. Funding for Avopop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art, and PRI, Public Radio International affiliate stations around the U.S. And thank you for supporting your public radio station. Visit afropop.org for interviews and more on the history of music and politics in Jamaica. You can also find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at AfropopWW. My Afropop partner is Sean Barlow. Sean produces our program for world music productions. Research and production for this program by David Katz and Saxon Baird. And join us next week for another edition of Afropop Worldwide. Our chief audio engineer and co-producer is Michael Jones. Additional engineering by Mike Kaplan, Benning Air, and C.C. Smith edit our website, afropop.org. Our producer for new media is Atane Ofiadja. And I'm Georges Collinet. Public Radio International.